1: Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for
0: the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running.
2: New Balance. Run your way.
1: Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence.
0: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the... Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Hawthorne. Following the First World War, there was an unprecedented need to identify and commemorate the war dead on a scale that had never been seen before. A new book by Robert Sackville-West tells the story of those who dedicated their lives to searching for fallen soldiers and providing some form of closure for the bereaved. He joined us recently to talk about how the search still isn't over and how the nature of commemoration has changed over the last century. Putting the questions to him was our digital
3: editor, Eleanor Evans. Well, thank you so much, Robert, for joining us on the History Extra podcast. And I hope to start by hearing a little from you on who are the searchers in the title of your book.
4: Well, at the end of the First World War, there were about half a million um, uh, soldiers who were mostly presumed uh, dead, but there was no body and no grave. And as a result of that, their families hoped against hope that they were alive somewhere. And wherever there was room for doubt, they would cling to those hopes. And so in the most general sense, the searchers are all those um, particularly bereaved relatives who were looking for their lost dead. So that's the general category of searchers. Then there are very specific... Um, searchers from the army exhumation squads who scoured the battlefield searching for um, uh, bodies to retrieve them. And there are the, again, the bereaved relatives actually going out to the battlefields to search for uh, graves and so on. But the book begins, and the First World War begins, with a very specific type of searcher. And at the start of my book, I talk about the volunteers who worked for the now forgotten Red Cross uh, Wounded and Missing Inquiry Department. And there, 1,200 volunteer searchers, it was their job to interview um, wounded soldiers in hospitals and convalescent homes um, uh, on their return to the UK. Um, to find out what had happened to their missing comrades. Had they actually seen them die? Could they have been taken uh, prisoner of war? Any information to resolve the question marks about the missing. And as a result, they could then relay those findings, if possible, to the um, uh, uh, bereaved families to allay this terrible uncertainty that they were experiencing.
3: Right. And before we hear a little more from you on the organisations and the um, individuals themselves who are taking on this work, I wonder if we could hear a little more on the nature of the First World War, the scale um, that that led to this uh, searching being so necessary. How had identification and therefore commemoration evolved from previous conflicts?
4: A hundred years um, before the First World War at the Battle of Waterloo, for example, Um, the bodies of officers might be, or the bodies of dead officers might be brought back home and possibly on the site of the battlefield in Belgium or wherever, uh, a monument um, erected to the the commanding officers. Um, But that was no longer at all appropriate at the beginning of the First World War, because at the beginning of the First World War, the British Army consisted of about 300,000 regular soldiers at the beginning of the war. During the course of the First World War, five million soldiers were deployed, you know, on the Western Front alone at some period of of time. And um, many of those were killed. So it was they, these were civilian, they, these were citizen soldiers. They, At the beginning of the war, millions had volunteered. And even when conscription was um, introduced, there was a general belief that these were citizen soldiers um, fighting in a patriotic cause. And it was no good any longer to assume that this, you know, death on a foreign battlefield was, you know, part of the... Um, Um, sort of necessary um, end for a a soldier, families and indeed the soldiers themselves expected that they would in some way or other be identified and commemorated in their death. And so other forms of commemoration, of burial and of ceremony had to be um, uh, invented.
3: Right, and I understand we're, we're going to talk a little more about those in a short while. But if we can return then to the formation of um, some of these organisations who took up this searching on behalf of the bereaved, what can you tell us about um, the efforts there?
4: Well, it's it's hard to um, imagine now, but at the beginning of the First World War, if you were quite wealthy and well-connected, you could go off to the battlefields of France and Belgium, and actually look for or ask people yourself um, um, and soldiers yourself about what might have happened to your um, um, lost um, relative. You might be able to try and search for a grave. You might even visit the hospitals where wounded soldiers were. And if a number of well healed people did this, um, Rudyard Kipling did this. Um, in, the, in in 1915, after his son had been killed, but actually earlier than that, a year before, a woman called Violet Cecil lost her son, George, in the first weeks of the war. And so Violet Cecil uh, goes out with her brother-in-law, George's uncle, to um, uh, the battlefields, uh, to villers in um, in France, to... Um, search, ask questions about, and search for her son's, George's, um, grave. Robert Cecil, George's uncle, eventually finds, it, it witnesses the unearthing of George's, uh, body in a mass grave and, um, is able to, uh, let, um, Violet know and sends her some buttons from his, um, his uniform. Robert Cecil is in France because he uh, is in charge of running ambulance services for the Red Cross. And the more he does this, the more he realizes that there is a pressing need to um, uh, find out and relay and collate information about the missing. And so he sets up this um, uh, organization staffed by volunteers called the Red Cross Wounded and Missing Inquiry Department. Over the course of the war, the volunteers of this department interview five million soldiers about their missing comrades and reply and answer the queries of 400,000 families. Most of those families... Oh well, overwhelmingly, those families are the families of privates and non-commissioned officers. So actually, what you've got from the beginning of the war, you have a few well-heeled, well-connected people searching for their uh, loved ones. Uh, by the end of the war, there is a much more democratic effort to and obligation. It is felt to um, search for, try, and provide answers. Usually, the answer is simply to confirm that, yes, they were dead. Occasionally, they actually find somebody in a prisoner of war camp or in a hospital. But I think the families, whether whatever the news, were grateful simply for the certainty that came with knowing for certain that their um, son, for example, was dead, and got some consolation from the fact that at least somebody, some organisation, had made inquiries on their behalf and, you know, taken that care because the War Office didn't, um, well, didn't have the time to or the resources to.
3: Right, and there's such poignancy in so many of the accounts in your book that share how families did find out about their loved one. Um, And I thought, something that was really interesting to me was the buffer that um this organization served between that brutal reality of war that led to so many of these um soldiers being missing or unconfirmed um and then the the what the families were expecting could you talk a little more about that that language um that that role that the searchers served
4: if it had been left to the war office what you got as a um, you know, certainly at the beginning of the war, if you were the family of an officer, you get a telegram saying your, um, relation, whatever, had been, um, reported, uh, missing or was dead or whatever. If you were, um, uh, um, a private, um, your family would simply get a letter, which would arrive several weeks later, but it, the statements would be very, very bald. you know, reported missing or unfortunately, uh, reported um, confirmed dead. What the wounded and missing inquiry department did was whatever the circumstances, it provided more detail. So there would be some information, if possible, from comrades wrapped up in the confirmation of a death about the last moments of that uh, person's death, where they were, what they said, um, what type of person they'd been, and so the families felt, to a certain extent, that they were sort of following in the, the final footsteps of their loved one, and that brought them uh, closer uh, to the, um, the the lost one. You know, it confirmed the death, which was a necessary thing, because actually, confirmation of the reality of death was better than the limbo of uncertainty. But also, it provided personal information about the loved one. And this was crucially important at a time when these men were dying, you know, hundreds of miles away. And there was no opportunity to actually, you know, say any goodbyes, uh, no opportunity to attend a funeral, no coffin, no body. And so this personal Contact that the you know, department and its searchers provided actually gave some families, at least, um, a great consolation. It was referred to by um, Lord Northcliffe, who, who, who wrote a book on um, the Red Cross and aspects as a you know a, a labour of love. And to a certain extent, it was
3: yes, a very um, moving and poignant. Uh, service indeed. Um but as you've already alluded to, complicating this picture, there there were stories of bodies being misidentified, weren't there, that did offer glimmers of hope for families and loved ones.
4: Uh there were, and whenever there was such a story, people would cling on it to it because they would believe that that was actually possibly what had happened um uh, to them and th- it was it was desperate really the extent to which people um, kept uh, believing, you know, uh, Rudyard Kipling, for example, hoped against hope that his son John um, had um, survived, and he went to great extents. He, he contacted, you know, members of the royal family, members of European royal families in neutral countries, ambassadors to neutral countries, in the hope that they might be able to provide. Um, more information on prisoner of war lists and so on. He also um, organized for um, um, air, um Air Force or the, the, the early Air Force to drop sort of leaflets over behind enemy lines asking for any information about. Um, his son, John's whereabouts. And despite all the mounting evidence that John was dead, it wasn't till four years later, 1919, that he finally accepted that John was dead. He then actually spent the next 20, almost 20 years of his life trying to find John's um, grave. Um, So on the whole, the stories were... You know, missing actually meant killed. But nevertheless, people would really clutch at any straw to um, uh, to believe that they were um, alive.
3: Yes. So 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 many of these stories led to um, an evolution in the way that the war dead and missing were comm- commemorated. Could we talk a little about the the new ceremonies that came about to memorialise and commemorate in the wake of the First World War?
4: I mean the two ceremonies, I guess, that are you know um, uh, fundamental to this um, to the, the post-war commemoration, and actually continue to this day in really very much the same form, are the um, uh, the tomb of the uh, unknown warrior and the cenotaph, and both of them were in some ways attempts to um, allow, you know, the c- communities to mourn the absent dead. Um, the, the, the unknown warrior was the sort of brainchild of an army chaplain called um, uh, David Railton, who one evening near his um, billet in um, Armentières in, in France, saw at the bottom of his garden a, um, where they were billeted, a plain wooden cross with um, the um, words um, uh, written in in, uh, black uh, lead pencil, unknown soldier of the Black Watch. And he began to wonder, David Railton, the the, the army chaplain, who was this unknown soldier? Who were his folk? Um, What were they thinking? And slowly it dawned upon him that actually if there could be a celebration of the unknown soldier, the unknown soldier who could represent ev- all unknown soldiers, this would be um, a very reassuring thing for the bereaved. So throughout the war and just after, he kept um, championing his his idea until um, it was um, accepted. Um, and in 1920, the, the body of an unknown soldier, a completely anonymous unknown soldier, uh, was brought back from the battlefields to Westminster Abbey. And the extraordinary thing about this was that, again, going back to this notion of how death is somehow um, democratised, here was an unknown common soldier. The the, the coffin had on it... um, the, the army webbing um, uh, belt, the steel helmet, a sidearm. These were the, um, you know, uh, equipment of, you know, the common soldier. And here was the common soldier, an anonymous common soldier, being buried in Westminster Abbey with all the pomp and ceremony, which would normally be sort of accorded to a, a field marshal. And people re- absolutely related to this they really believed um that actually this um the body in this coffin was their son people would say you know it's him it's him um mothers in the crowd would say uh, my boys come home so this was um a, a, a sort of genius idea and then parallel to that a slightly different idea which um Fulfilled, I guess, a similar uh, function in some ways was the cenotaph, and the cenotaph, um, which was designed by um, in, in, in initially in a you know terrible rush by Edwin Lutyens, was a much more um, a sort of abstract modern uh, structure, and it wasn't Christian in sort of iconography. It was. Um, um, Its only words that it bore were the glorious dead. And uh, on top there is a sort of empty, the cenotaph means empty um, tomb. So here was an empty as opposed to a full tomb on which the sort of blank screen on which the sort of um, um, nation could sort of project their um, emotions. So both of these, the the cenotaph was in fact... um, Uh, Its first uh, iteration was in 1919, but it was so popular, it captured such a sort of um, public mood that it was turned into a, it became a permanent structure in 1920 and was unveiled on the same day as the um, unknown warrior was buried. And both of these um, uh, structures allowed the nation to... um, attend in some way the funeral uh, and to mourn the body that they had never been able to do because of the war being fought at such a distance.
3: Yes, it's so interesting how these um, two memorials came to serve such different purposes. I found that really, really interesting to read about. Um, and if we can return to to the searchers uh, themselves and the service they were providing for families or, or seeking for themselves, can we talk a little more about the, the sense of... Um, Therapy or, or closure or catharsis, what, whatever might be the right word in situations that that people found in these efforts,
4: the individuals, the bereaved relatives, they found. Well, as I was saying with the with the, the tomb of the unknown warrior, you know, um, my boy has come home. Uh, that was what, or or when they got a letter from the wounded and missing inquiry department, which. Um, uh, gave them some personal um, information, along with the the fact that their loved one was dead. This gave them, you know, sort of confirmation, and you know, I guess, in today's parlance, some sort of closure or acceptance of uh, the reality. The one of the the major things that people did after the war you know you think now that it's only a sort of battlefield tourism is something that 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 we do in the 20th and our school children do in the 20th century but actually immediately after the war tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of people of britons went to the battlefields of the western front literally on Pilgrimage and what they wanted to see, well, they wanted to see a grave, because it was their first opportunity to see a grave. And so the the the, the way that they these these visitors to the, the, the cemeteries that they were visiting um, write about these graves are, are again, you know, um, you know, at last at my eye can rest easy because I have seen where my John. Or whoever lies, and I they they would they would take um, tracings from the headstones, or or they would um, then take away a little piece of um, moss from the grave, or even if there was barbed wire, a little piece of barbed wire from from there. They would take some memento, and they would pray, and they would leave flowers, and I think that it was that that at last they could visit. Or those that um, had relatives who had known ha- who had known graves could visit that grave, and I think that that was what uh, brought, and certainly in the literature of the time, brought great solace to um, the search those searchers, and it was a you know a tribute to um, the um, War Graves Commission who had constructed uh, these what were initially rather controversial cemeteries, but constructed in them in such a way that there was a sort of uh, a a great beauty um, to uh, the places that these pilgrims um, visited.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
4: Even today, 50 bodies uh, are found in the battlefields of France and Belgium every year or sort of 50 sets of human remains. And again, each of these is then, every effort is made to um, identify name and honor.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match.
2: Visit betterhelp.com/slash History Extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H E L P.com/slash History Extra.
3: And um, for those who couldn't make such a pilgrimage, um, you, you write about those who sort of, um, there are mantelpieces across the country that sort of become uh, shrines to those who are who are missing, who are fallen. What, what about those who couldn't make such a journey? Could they, was the same sort of, uh, I'll use that word again, closure, um, available to people?
4: Well, they could always visit. Uh, well, If you could travel to London, you could visit um uh you know and even pilgrimage were made to the tomb of the unknown warrior and to the cenotaph so you could do that but actually in parallel to the to the the, the cemeteries that were being constructed in um on the western front in the 1920s there were tens of thousands of war memorials being constructed in uh, Britain. It was an absolute sort of boom time for um, stone monumental, uh, uh, masons. And so in parish churches, in, um, village squares, in workplaces, there were, um, uh, sometimes memorials, sometimes lists of names. Um, uh, often, um, much more idiosyncratic, I guess, and uh, individual than the the, the uniform. The, the genius of the, the cemeteries was their their uniformity. Their you know their statement that, that there is equality in death, and they were uniform. But in the UK, people could do what they wanted. So you could still either go to London for on a uh, pilgrimage or celebrate or not celebrate. Uh, um, uh, participate in Remembrance uh, Day um, services um, or you could visit your um, local church and one of the things that did happen as the cemeteries were being uh, built and replacing the um, often wooden crosses that had previously marked those graves, the wooden crosses were often brought back to Britain and many parish churches around the country have in their porch or wherever a collection of of these wooden original wooden crosses um, commemorating the initial um, resting places of their former villagers.
3: So you've spoken um, about the efforts to identify and commemorate in the immediate aftermath of the First World War and into the 1920s, but um, such an interesting factor in your book that is explored is that the search isn't over, is it?
4: Uh, No, it's not. Um, And uh, that is perhaps one of the things that surprised me most. Because obviously, in theory, it, it shouldn't come as a surprise because... Even at the time, um, three million uh, British people lost a very close, an immediate family member, a um, a, a child, a spouse, um, uh, a sibling, a son. Um, That's three million people really closely affected. Um, And... The other thing is now, you know, this impact still ripples on in in British society. Almost every one of British descent has an ancestor who served in the armed uh, forces in the First World War. Um, Most of those would have served on the Western Front and many would have been killed. So there is a direct connection. I know it's over, over two or three generations now, maybe more, but with um, the uh, First World War. So there is an interest uh, in uh, what happened to these ancestors. And an example of the sort of level of interest is that the um, Commonwealth War Graves Commission, which manages and creates and manages the cemeteries um, in the 1970s, uh, received uh, a couple of thousand inquiries a year, About you know the location of graves and so on and so forth. They now its website now receives five thousand visits a day. You know that's over a million visits a day. People trying to find out where so and so, some great great uncle, great grandfather is buried. So there's 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 an there's an interest from people in this in this subject, and that interest is continues to be served, it seems to me, by the Commonwealth War Graves in that um, they continue to um, attempt to identify, retrieve, identify, uh, name and honour people as they did 100 years ago. So, in 2009 work started on the you know the biggest archaeological project to do with the first world war that there has ever been and at a place called um, Fromel in uh, France 250 <clears throat> english and australian um, soldiers bodies were unearthed well discovered and unearthed in mass graves and Attempts were made to identify these two hundred and fifty um, soldiers, which is an incredibly difficult process after the elapse of a um, um, hundred years. Uh, but due to you know modern forensic techniques and DNA sampling and so on, they managed to actually name. 166, or so far, 166 of these 250 bodies, and these bodies have been uh, buried, and um, many of them were buried in the um, um, in the company of um, their descendants who who attended these uh, burials. So this, that search goes on even today. Our 50 bodies are, are found in the battlefields of France and Belgium, every year. That's all 50 sets of human remains. And again, each of these uh, is then, um, every effort is made to um, identify name and honour. So, I mean, as part of the research for the book, I visited the um, uh, mortuary uh, near Arras, where the Commonwealth War Graves uh, Commission does this work And um, as, you know, um, an industrial state is developed or a new hospital is created or a canal dug, these bodies continue to to surface at the rate of, you know, 50 a year. And they really do make the effort to um, uh, identify them. And then, often through DNA um, sampling, and their families then are invited to attend the burial 100 years uh, later, or more than 100 years later. Um, So that happens. the other thing that happens is that every year there are probably about a dozen um, services of rededication where a grave that was previously um, uh, inscribed as um, the grave of an unknown British soldier, new evidence comes to light, which allows researchers to identify that grave as belonging to an actually named individual because they've worked out how it must be so and so and there are probably about a dozen or so of those um ceremonies um uh, every year and i've spoken to various um people who have been you know contacted and then attended services of great uncles and so on um and even though it's obviously nothing like as sort of Visceral, the experience as it would have been for a grieving widow in the nineteen twenties. It's there is still a sense that it falls, some of these families fills some uh, void in them, um, um, in the family history. You know that you know where that person in that photograph in your f- family album, where in fact, you know, for the first time you learn where they actually are buried.
3: Yes, indeed. And I wonder if um, you could talk a little about um, Kipling's efforts, because it wasn't till the 90s that um, his, his son was finally identified. Is that right?
4: Yes, so exactly. So his he was an example of, um, um, a, as it were, a rededication. And John Kipling um, was killed in uh, September 1915. And as I said, his parents, you know, spent four years, hoping that he was still alive. And then even after they'd accepted his death, then spent, you know, the whole of the 1920s, they went on annual pilgrimages to France, hoping that one day they'd get some information about where his grave might be. And they uh, never did. And the Kiplings died in the late 1930s, not knowing um, where John lay, and, um, and so i suppose for them the only consolation was uh kipling had been literary advisor to the commonwealth war graves commission and had come up with the all the phrases associated with commonwealth war graves commission so whenever you see their name live forevermore this was a phrase that um kipling had taken in fact from ecclesiasticus but you know he'd you know decided that this was a you know, really um the phrase that 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 we should you know come to associate with these cemeteries and so it was an irony in a way that his John's name well it lived on a, a memorial um to the missing but not as a, a grave and it was only in 1992 that quite controversially a researcher um from the uh, associated with the Commonwealth War Graves Commission came up with the uh, conclusion that a particular grave uh, in a cemetery near Ypres, which was uh, described as um grave of an uh, unknown Irish lieutenant, which is what uh, John Kipling was, that uh, it was um, uh, accepted that that grave must belong to. Um, Uh, John Kipling so you know this was 60 years after um, almost 60 years after the Kiplings had died that eventually the uh, you know the the name was um, was actually um, ascribed to a um, um, to a particular grave Um, but it was a terrible you know the the loss I think what happened with the First World War uh, is that, you know, the the, the the deaths of all these young men reverse the natural order of death in, you know, you expect the parents to die first? But actually in this instance, it was the the, the, the sons that were dying first. And this was incredibly disorienting. And, you know, the Kipling, Roger Kipling, his wife, were disoriented by John's death for the rest of their lives. And whereas they went to... Um, uh, uh, France to look for John's grave, you know, his um, his contemporary, he had a contemporary called Raymond Lodge, who, you know, turned to the spirit world to contact his um, son. So these were the lengths to which people would go.
3: Uh, Yes, um, it's an incredibly moving story and there are so many in your account. And I wonder if we could perhaps begin to um, wrap up by touching on uh, what you do in in the book uh, and mention that it's 100 years since the poppy was adopted as a symbol of commemoration and and remembrance. Um, And also the the two-minute silence. How has it evolved in terms of a, a tool of introspection and remembrance?
4: I don't know whether it's the actual silence has evolved as a um, a sort of tool of uh, introspection. But it's certainly the tone of the day has uh, evolved. And um, one of the um, uh, interesting uh, aspects is that in 1920, when the Cenotaph was unveiled, um, there was very little... It was... was, uh, The Prime Minister... Uh, was very insistent that, that it should be a sort of secular day, shouldn't be too um, uh, religious. There wouldn't be prayers at that particular unveiling. And I think that what throughout time, um, according to the sort of mood of the nation, the service becomes either more or less religious, more or less pacifist you know, in the 1930s, as the um, uh, Second World War approached and, you know, there were movements for, you know, the pac- pacifism was um, uh, strong. There were, you know, movements even to, um, uh, it was thought that, you know, Remembrance Day had had its, had had its day. And in any case, it should be more um, uh, geared towards celebrating international peace rather than any form of commemoration of war. I think things and, and, and change massively over time. In the 1970s, um, I remember Remembrance Day not being that big a thing. Today, it is probably as uh, emotive um, uh, a ritual as... Um, as exists, so the rituals and people's um, perception of them, I think, change. And the one thing that doesn't change, though, and if this is the genius of the silence, is that if you, whoever you are, and whatever uh, you may think about war and peace, um, uh, 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 a secular remembrance or a religious. Uh, remembrance, uh, whatever you think about uh, what defines Britishness or what doesn't, at least the silence is that opportunity when people can simply uh, be, as you say, um, introspective and think about all these things and possibly think about ancestors they may have had who'd, who'd fought. And I think that that is its uh, real uh strength.
0: That was Robert Sackville-West. His book, The Searchers, The Quest for the Lost of the First World War, is published by Bloomsbury and is out now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us again tomorrow when David Kennedy will be answering your questions on the Great Depression.